0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan. Today, a medication which may prevent cancer and dementia and costs a few cents a day. Too good to be true? Well, wait and see. They say that 50% of dementia is preventable. An Australian study shows benefit from a cocktail of non-drug interventions. And a story about energy drinks, which will stand your hair on end or maybe even bleach it. Just joking about that bit, but the research is serious. And the longer the coronavirus pandemic drags on, the clearer it becomes that for some people with COVID-19, symptoms don't simply clear up when the infection does. Anecdotal reports and a growing body of research suggests persistent fatigue, shortness of breath and brain fog, amongst other symptoms, are plaguing COVID-19 patients for weeks and sometimes months after they were infected. Tegan Taylor is taking a well-earned vacation this week and in her stead we have a colleague, And health reporter, Olivia Willis. Liv, welcome back to The Health Report. Good to be here. Uh, Regular Health Report listeners would know that Liv occasionally presents The Health Report. And you've been looking at this story, Liv.
0: I have, yeah. It's a very interesting and a little bit of a concerning one, really.
1: Yes. What proportion of COVID-19, I mean, I've looked at the literature here, it's Mm. all over the shop in terms of the proportion.
0: Yeah, it's really difficult to say because even though it feels like we've been in this pandemic forever, in terms of research, it's still kind of early days and we certainly don't have any long-term data on the effects of COVID on the body and even the medium-term data is kind of limited. Um, in saying that, there are some estimates. So there was a study in Italy in July that looked at about 140 people with acute COVID infections and found that almost 90% of them were still experiencing symptoms two months later. 90%? 90%. That's kind of acute, acute infections. So and it was then, a selected group. It wasn't yeah. Abroad, yeah. The, in the US, they've looked at a broader group of people, which they're kind of, the severity of their disease really ranges from mild through to more severe. And they found that number was closer to about 10 to 15%. And are a from the CDC again, I think found about a third that were still experiencing, or not totally back to normal health, within two three weeks, and so it varies a little bit. I'd say it's a significant minority, but we're not sure exactly how many yet.
1: But when you've got tens of thousands of cases, even ten or fifteen percent turns out to be a lot.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah.
1: And what's the relationship between severity severity and the long term effects?
0: Well, in some ways, you'd obviously expect to see a kind of correlation in a way between the severity of disease at the acute stage of the infection and maybe the likelihood of ongoing symptoms. But that's not really necessarily what we're seeing with COVID. So symptoms like ongoing fatigue, breathlessness, um, difficulty concentrating are being reported by people who had mild cases to begin with or who were even asymptomatic. Um, And they can be
1: younger as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. So it's affecting people of various ages, um, people who don't necessarily have pre-existing health conditions. And in some cases it seems like the symptoms are taking some time to appear oh really Mm, so they might be feeling okay and then several weeks later either symptoms kind of re-emerge or if they never had symptoms to begin with that's when they start to experience them
1: how tight a relationship is there with covid19 again i've I've seen reports where people are getting these symptoms, but they are not. They haven't tested positive for the virus.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I've seen lots of those too. And I think in some cases, certainly in the US, they're saying that uh, people may not have qualified for a test early on when the testing was quite limited. So they weren't able to get a test and then experience symptoms much later. And they've kind of put it down to it's likely that they had a COVID-19 infection, but they didn't necessarily test positive to the virus at the time because they couldn't get a test. Um, but we also know that people who are experiencing symptoms, they have cle- some of them have cleared the infection, so they test negative to the virus. That it's no longer in their body, but they're still experiencing symptoms that persist.
1: And what do the experts? How do they, what do they speculate is actually causing it? If the virus is gone, is this just a common or garden post-viral fatigue that you can get with hepatitis or mm. Epstein Barr or something like yeah. that?
0: Yeah, look, it's not exactly clear. In some cases, it may you know it may still be the virus itself that's causing the damage. We know that the acute stage of the infection. Um, the virus can kind of attack various different organs and the Including symptoms... the brain. That's right. And the symptoms in this kind of um, ongoing sense seem to be really wide ranging as well. So it's possible that, say, the lungs, for example, we know that the, if the virus infects the airways, it can make it difficult to breathe. And that may explain some effects later on that people still are struggling with breathlessness and so on. But researchers suspect that what's going on is high levels of inflammation in the body, um, which are triggered you know, when the immune system is trying to rid the body of the infection, that that that... that may be actually causing some of those ongoing effects.
1: Is it a specific COVID-19 syndrome, or is it the same spectrum of symptoms as you get with post-viral fatigue?
0: Well, there seems to definitely be similarities there. So we know that post-viral fatigue is obviously seen in other viral infections. and there's, Such as? Well, there's been some interesting comparisons drawn between what COVID-19 long haulers, they describe themselves, what they're experiencing, and the symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome. And we know that chronic fatigue syndrome is linked to infections, specifically the Epstein-Barr Virus. Although that
1: is controversial.
0: That is controversial. But so that's a kind of interesting idea that's emerging. Um, But COVID 19 also seems to be behaving in slightly different ways to other coronaviruses. I mean, if you look at something like cardiovascular symptoms, we know that in the original SARS outbreak, Cardiovascular symptoms were there, but they were generally kind of self limiting and not persisting beyond the period of recovery. And what we're seeing with COVID is that not only can it cause heart inflammation in people who show mild symptoms as well as more severe, it seems there's some research which is a little bit controversial, but some research which suggests people who have recovered from COVID 19 um, who weren't hospitalized to begin with still have some kind of heart abnormality several months later.
1: I mean, the good news is compared to chronic fatigue, which does tend to go on for a long time. My my understanding is this does go away after, it might take six months, but it does go away. So it's much more tip, much more like post-viral fatigue than chronic fatigue syndrome.
0: I suspect so, but I think it's difficult to say while we're still at the kind of, I don't know, nine month mark of the pandemic.
1: And there's an Australian study at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney that we are spoken about on the health report. When, mm. Are they gonna report soon?
0: I believe they are. I believe their results are coming out uh, quite soon. So stay tuned for those.
1: It's Olivia Willis, who is health reporter with the ABC science unit. According to a newly published Australian study, a common, out-of-patent and therefore cheap medication, which is used to control type 2 or adult-onset diabetes, may also reduce cognitive decline and the incidence of dementia, at least in people with diabetes. But who knows, maybe more broadly. The medication is called metformin and the lead author in the study was Professor Catherine Samaris of the Garvin Institute in Sydney. Welcome back to the Health Report, Cathy.
2: I'm very grateful to be here.
1: Uh well, wait till the end. We might not be grateful at the end. No, but seriously, <laughs> thanks for thanks for coming on. Tell us about this drug, metformin. What does it do?
2: So, I think we are being naive if we think we really know exactly what metformin does. Um, we've thought for a long time that it is something that makes insulin work better, an insulin sensitizer. Um, but about. 15 years ago, some really great research actually showed that it has a major glucose-lowering effect by lowering the amount of sugar that the liver produces, particularly overnight. But we know from some of the other studies that it has a lot of other effects. For example, it may even change the way our genes are wired. So it can change the way our genes are expressed, epigenetic changes in response to taking the medication. It probably changes the gut microbiome. There's quite a bit of research suggesting that it alters the gut microbiome and therefore may have anti-inflammatory effects through changes on the gut microbiome. There's some interesting research looking at how it might change the way the body ages. So there are processes that lead to cell death, including the way proteins fold and the way that they are um, uh, arranged in the cell that allows the cell to function really well, so that it may explain some of the, the data around people living longer when they are on metformin. And there are some interesting animal research studies that have suggested that you know, that is actually a true phenomenon rather than just a simple observation that has been made.
1: And there are trials going on to see whether it prevents cancer?
2: Well, there are, and there have been two randomized control trials looking at one, prostate cancer, and secondly, breast cancer, showing that if metformin is added in to standard therapy for these two cancer types, then the outcomes were better in the longer term. And that also fits with um, some of the data around modest weight reduction in patients who have cancer who are overweight, that they also improve outcomes. Metformin can cause in some of the studies a 3 to 5 kg weight loss. So um, there are some very, very interesting um, benefits to metformin that are not simply um, quarantined, if you like, by diabetes alone.
1: So this study was not a trial. You were observing, you know, the, the University of New South Wales has this long-running study observing people as they age and doing brain scans and what have you. And you you were observing people with and without diabetes and the people and the medications they were on with diabetes and doing very intensive uh, developmental tests on them to see whether how their cognitive function was going.
2: Correct, Norman. The Sydney Memory and Aging Study um, has recruited over a 1,000 people um, from the Wentworth um, uh, area. Um, and all of these people have very generously come in for days of testing. So we look at their metabolic profiles we look at uh, they answer a whole range of questionnaires about their health about having falls about what kind of work they've done what kind of environmental exposures they may have had in workplaces how much weight they've put on over the years um, and in addition to that, we've been looking at vascular measures, we've been looking at a whole range of measures in blood to do with inflammation, and then the cognitive testing, which is a real strength of the study.
1: And what so did you find we, we when, only, you, when you looked at whether or not they were taking metformin?
2: So it basically removes the effect of having diabetes on cognitive ageing.
1: So diabetes so, speeds up cognitive ageing, and correct. if are on metformin, it seems to slow it down to normal.
2: It makes it exactly like every other 76 to 96-year-old that was in our study who didn't have diabetes. So it completely removed that effect that you see, Uh, whereas the people who had diabetes and were not metformin had that very much steeper loss of uh, cognition that you would expect that we know about in in type two diabetes. But the dementia data were really uh, the the fascinating things for me. Because of the very, very rigorous assessment of cognition, um we could come up with um, a dementia diagnosis. and And the team involved in this are, are international experts at at dementia. So they involved Puminda Sashdev and Henry Bradati and their team of neuropsychologists. And so all of the events around dementia were adjudicated events, which means you have to very, very, very rigorously look at all of the data and go, yes, this person has crossed the line and meets a diagnosis of dementia. Prior studies have Been just like assessed by telephone call. Oh yes, you've got a a dementia diagnosis. So that's really not very sound research um, methodology. I think we've probably had one of the the most rigorous assessments of cognition to date in this kind of observational study. So it it really was very very clear cut that we saw these profound reductions, 80% reduction in the rate of dementia in people with diabetes who were on metformin.
1: And presumably, if it was cause and effect, it was due to those other effects that you were talking about, inflammation, effect on the immune system, goodness knows what else.
2: Well, we tried to control for as much as we possibly could to make sure that any effect that we were observing could be attributed to metformin. And and hopefully you'll talk about it, Norma, but you can't say for sure. But we controlled for age, obviously, for the presence of heart disease, blood pressure, cholesterol. There's even a gene that increases the risk of development of dementia called apolipoprotein e Epsilon 4. It's a mouthful. Um, but we even controlled for that so that we couldn't attribute what we observed to other potential factors but there are always biases in these observational studies so given
1: it is an observational study but done in this detail Mm. is this ready for showtime in other words you um it's going to be very hard to repeat this study it's going to have to be done over years and years and years down the track are we ready to use metformin now on the basis of a study like this and some of the other findings out of metformin
2: no, I think we need the randomised control trial. So a good which way decade, is have we? happening. <laughs> well, the randomised control trial will start as soon as um, the pandemic settles and, um, and we can start recruiting people. So we put our data into the National Health and Medical Research Council And we're fortunate enough to be awarded um, with grant funding to look at this in people without diabetes. Because for me, we know... That the use of metformin in diabetes is, its it should be there as a foundation medication for all people with type 2 diabetes. We know that from data that show the lower blo- cancer bu- rates. So,
1: yeah, but the blockbuster effect mm-hmm. is if it works in people without diabetes.
2: Well, that's what we need to do, the randomized control trial, and we need to do it in people without diabetes.
1: Kathy, thanks for joining us.
2: You are very welcome, Norman.
1: Kathy Samaras, who is the uh, theme leader in healthy ageing at the Garvin Institute and is an endocrinologist at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. And we'll have a link to uh, some details about, about Metformin because it's not free of side effects such as nausea and vomiting and has some serious side effects, although they're a bit rare. Now, some experts argue that about 50% of dementia is preventable through things like maximising education early in life, keeping your blood pressure down, not smoking, having a good diet, avoiding diabetes and obesity, reasonably intense exercise, maintaining a good social network, and maybe even now metformin. Well, a consortium of Australian universities and research centres have just has just published the results of a randomised trial, this is a randomised trial, not an observational study, into a cocktail of non-drug interventions to see if they help people whose thinking and memory are impaired or declining. Professor Karen Anstey is Director of the Uni- University of New South Wales Ageing Futures Institute and is a Senior Research Scientist at Neura. Welcome to the Health Report, Karen.
3: Hello. Yep.
1: So tell us about the people you studied in this, r- in this randomised trial.
3: Yeah, so this trial focused on people who have either subjective cognitive decline or mild cognitive impairment. So subjective cognitive decline is when when you feel that your cognition is deteriorating or someone who knows you well thinks that it is, but we can't actually um, identify a change on clinical testing. But it's been shown that that group are actually at increased risk of developing mild cognitive impairment and dementia. So we targeted that group and then people who also had, um, had a cognitive impairment that was clinically accessible.
1: So I'm feeling more forgetful, but when I you, when you go to a neuropsychologist, they, they don't find anything abnormal.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: And what were the interventions you studied?
3: Right, so there was a control condition, which was an online educational uh, program that we've developed and assessed in healthy um, middle-aged adults who are at risk of dementia, and that is a educational model, module that tells you about dementia and risk factors. We have an educational module about physical activity, one about diet and one about um, cognitive engagement. And then the intervention group received the same module but they also had a face-to-face session with an exercise physiologist and two follow-up appointments and a face-to-face session with a dietitian who gave them very tailored dietary advice and followed them up as well. And they were also given a subscription to a brain training package.
1: So let's talk about the diet. You were encouraging them to get onto the Mediterranean diet, is that right?
3: Yes, that's correct. Um, the Systematic reviews have shown that the Mediterranean diet is associated with about a thirty percent reduced risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, so that was the diet that was selected for this intervention.
1: And the exercise—did it matter what kind of exercise they were taking? Because I, I understand that to be—it's going to be reasonably intensive to work.
3: Um, well, for this trial, what we've done, we've we've now conducted a few of these body-brain-life trials, and we've got to the point now where we leave the exercise prescription to the exercise physiologist so that it can be tailored to the individual. So we know from systematic review literature that meeting national guidelines is associated with a certification. 30- percent reduced risk of dementia which is 150 minutes a week you know the usual um, guidelines that we hear about but we also know it's very very difficult to to change habit and to get people um, who are inactive to start exercising so for this trial we left it to the exercise physiologist to to design a personalized program which we thought was more appropriate and uh, we think that that's that's the way to go in the future.
1: And do they stick with the brain training? Because people often don't. It's a nice idea. <laughs> That's a
3: really good question. Uh, no. So um, our trial, like um, also the FINGER trial, which is the other, the very famous trial, multi-domain trial, um, had poor adherence to brain training. So what we find is, uh, and we've seen this in other studies as well, people start off very enthusiastic, but they get bored with it. Uh, so we had about a 20% adherence to the full program of brain training. Most people started the brain training, but they didn't stick with it.
1: And what were the results?
3: Um, so this trial showed that the people who received the more intensive intervention, uh, they had cognitive improvement at a six-month follow-up. So, uh, and so the,
1: improvement rather than just the decline yes. stopping, they actually got better.
3: Um, yes. Yeah, so what we see with cognition is that when we repeat tests, people um, – do better from practice effects. So uh, we tend to see a slight improvement, you know, over a period of six six months. And in, in normal um, aging, where we would or people with cognitive impairment, we'd be seeing
1: a decline. It seems like a very short time to get an improvement.
3: Um, yes, it was a short time, but this is an at risk group where we're seeing. Uh, the, the reason this particular trial was targeting this group is that we do see conversion to, from, from these conditions into dementia. So people with mild cognitive impairment you know, have a 5 to 10% chance of progressing to dementia within 12 months. Uh, people with subjective cognitive decline have twice the risk of developing mild cognitive impairment. So this is a group, a group sort of who are, who are at risk of transitioning fairly quickly, which is why they're a key group for intervention.
1: Now, often randomised trials are into single things like brain training or the diet or the exercise. How valid is the package of stuff? I mean, I, I realise it's more real yeah. world, but you know, it, it also creates its own problems in terms of knowing what works.
3: Um, that's a very good question about this, this whole multi-domain approach. So what's happened in the field of dementia risk reduction is that people did focus on individual risk factors like physical activity, diet, etc., Um, and we're at the point now where we do have evidence. We've got the WHO guidelines uh, for based on the intervention evidence for each of these individual risk factors. But the consensus has been that we really need to target more than one risk factor at a time because we don't know uh, exactly which risk factor um, is, is is salient for which person and we think we'll get a much bigger effect if we target everything at once. That does mean we can't then go back and unpack and work out for which person which risk factor was important.
1: Once you crack the egg, you've cracked it. And just very briefly, because we're running out of time, Karen, what's this? you were using the ANU's dementia risk score. Just very briefly, how do you watch this yep. dementia risk score?
3: So that's a risk score that um, I led the development of. That was based on data synthesis. So we synthesized all of the literature um, on risk factors for dementia that was available at the time, and we developed a weighted composite risk score, which is freely available. Um, and people can go in and assess their risk. And then that was validated against three um, international cohort studies, including the US Cardiovascular Health Study, the Rush Memory and Ageing Study and the, the Swedish Kungshomen Project. And it was shown to predict dementia in those cohorts and we've also validated it in an Australian cohort. So we use that as a, what we call a surrogate outcome measure, uh, particularly in, in adults uh, who or in trials where we're not going to follow up people long enough to see if they develop dementia.
1: Well, we'll have a link to the Dementia Risk Score on the Health Report's website. Karen, thanks for joining us. That's fascinating work.
3: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Professor Karen Anstey is Director of the University of New South Wales Ageing Futures Institute and is a Senior Research Scientist at Neuro. A study of energy drinks has found that many undergo a chemical reaction which produces hydrogen peroxide, a substance which causes oxidative stress. That's biological rusting which is the reason why hydrogen peroxide is quite a good antiseptic. But could it lie behind the increasing proportion of so- stomach cancers in young people in some parts of the world? Professor Louise Bennett is in the School of Chemistry at Monash University and is one of the people who did this research. Welcome to The Health Report. Uh,
4: thank you, Norman. Good afternoon.
1: Hydrogen peroxide does occur in nature, coffee, honey. Um, I mean, do, are, are its effects all bad?
4: Uh, look, de- definitely not. Th- those uh, natural occurrences of, of hydrogen peroxide reflect the uh, the vital the that are present naturally in these beverages. And usually, what accompanies uh, those productions in an in a natural food are natural protective factors as well. So the, the levels so are quite are quite managed. So
1: there's yin and yang in a natural product.
4: That's that's correct. So, so the, the real issue is is when uh, you have these pro-oxidant effects of phytonutrients that are um, are present ex vivo without these natural protective effects.
1: So that's why you looked at the energy drinks because they're entirely synthetic.
4: Look, that, that's exactly right. So what we we found, I mean, in the, the way <clears throat> redox active compounds can behave. You better is just
1: explain <laughs> redox active, since not all of us have a PhD in chemistry.
4: <laughs> sure, so look, these are, these are compounds, chemical compounds, uh, which have capacity to either take an electron on board or to donate an electron to, to another compound. So they're, they're unstable, if you like, in the presence of another redox active companion, and that's what, what the situation is with the formulations in some of these energy drinks.
1: And so they produce um, free radicals, which then cling onto something else and do damage. So what did, what did you find when you analysed the energy drinks?
4: Well, that's right. So look, we looked at about 40 beverages, 28 of which were energy drinks and the rest were either soft drinks or just some mineral waters. And only in about five of those 28 did we see appreciable levels of the hydrogen peroxide. So, And the levels, in fact, are, are low. I mean, they are lower than than allowed levels uh, you know that are associated with sanitization for example but the point is that they are much higher than levels that would be naturally produced in the body
1: and, and if you guzzle down a lot of them you could be taking a fair bit now is it in the bottle before you start or does it is, it, is there a chemical reaction after the manufacture of the energy drink because I noticed it was related to vitamin c content in the drink as well
4: that's exactly right. So, so basically, you've got a, a chemically unstable mixture of ingredients that are that are. Re- Active. You could say it's it's an electronic Russian roulette. You, you don't know where those electrons are going to end up. And if they end up uh, associated with the dissolved oxygen, this is when you can form so-called reactive oxygen species of which hydrogen peroxide is one. And it's actually a very stable form of, of reactive oxygen.
1: So does that mean if if it's been open and exposed to air, it's more likely to happen or what?
4: Yes, that's exactly right. So, so the, the there is a propensity for when you open the bottle and it's exposed to more oxygen, that in fact that level of hydrogen peroxide increases, and and it's stabilised because of the acid pH of that of that bottle as well.
1: And sparkling energy drinks, or are they all, were they all flat? Because sparkling comes from carbon dioxide, doesn't it? Which might get rid of oxygen. Was there any relationship between whether it was fizzy or not?
4: Uh, well, well. As a matter of fact, in that the the process to to make these energy drinks, the uh, the carbonation occurs um, afterwards, and, it, and it's all trapped in the bottle. So really, that chemistry is related to the amount of dissolved oxygen that's in the that's in the water that's used to make the drink.
1: So it's five out of twenty eight drinks. So these are branded energy drinks. Um, what? Everybody listening is going to say, well, I don't want to buy one of these five. and you, you, Obviously, you're not going to name them. But what, do you, what should you be looking at on the label? Or should we just not be drinking energy drinks?
4: Look. I do think this research does justify a little bit more investigation of of which formulations and combinations are, are susceptible to producing the hydrogen peroxide. So in our research we did identify a handful of ingredients in combination with the ascorbic acid that seemed to be um, see. particularly that that's right, vitamin C, uh, but but you know you, you can have um, a net suppression. So even if you don't see the hydrogen peroxide, it, it doesn't mean that it isn't a chemically unstable system. So you still may have had some chemical reactivity going on. So so the point is that these these systems are, are not are are, un, are chemically unstable potentially, and that that's of some concern.
1: So essentially, what you found, just to summarise, you found it in synthetic energy drinks, but not in natural drinks or water.
4: That's right. So if you look at um, and we have screened a number of uh, of juices and and uh, vegetable smoothie type products and and what happens with those drinks is there's actually a natural extraction of of a little bit of protein and as a matter of fact the the best uh, antioxidant that nature can offer is protein so if there's any little bit of residue uh, enzyme or anything that comes through in that extraction the protein will suppress the, the hydrogen peroxide.
1: Louise we'll have you back on when you've done a bit more work on this fascinating.
4: Thank you very much.
1: And everybody's going to be thinking, what about the hydrogen peroxide toothpastes? Does it cause any harm? We'll (laughs) come back to that another time. Louise, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Professor Louise Bennett, thank you very much for joining us. And welcome back to Liv Willis. Hi. Hi. So what's our mailbag on health report at abc.net.au been telling us this week?
0: Well, there's been lots of feedback about the Mediterranean diet, which you spoke about last week, Norman. Mary mm-hmm. says someone on RN told me that cooking with olive oil wasn't good because cooking destroyed the omega-3 in the oil, so I stopped using olive oil. Can you elaborate, please?
1: I can. You should be cooking with olive oil. Olive oil is the secret sauce. It seems to be the element, if you look at other monounsaturated fats, if you're just looking at your heart, the other monounsaturated fats replace saturated fat. But there are all sorts of goodies in olive oil which react chemically with things like tomato and onion and other and other foodstuffs that you're cooking which create a very strong antioxidant environment so you should be cooking with olive oil because it's not just the olive oil you might lose a little bit with heating it but in fact you're gaining more by cooking with it we don't
0: know who said that on our end but listen to dr swan instead absolutely we also have a correction from marcus who says dr norman absolutely love listening to you but my italian mother would scold me if i didn't speak up sofrito is the mix of onion, carrot, and celery, which you cook before, all caps before, adding tomato in Italian cuisine.
1: So here am I, slapping my wrists. <laughs> more of a comment. Thank you, but thank you for Marcus. that comment. And can I just add, and going back to that original comment, is that when you cook carrot with tomato, you get an even more enhanced antioxidant effect. So there is some really? there is some magic that goes on between carrot and tomato chemically when you're cooking with it. So that's one of the things in Sofrito. So um, Marcus is spot on.
0: And last week we talked about the dangers of tattooing and an optometrist, Ian, he's written in saying that tattooing is linked to uveitis. That's a kind of eye inflammation that can cause pain and blurred vision and even retinal detachment. And they reckon that in rare cases, the tattoo ink can actually cause an immune response that triggers this inflammation.
1: I didn't know that. Nor did I. I've had four retinal detachments, uh, but I've never been inked, so I can't blame tattooing on it. (laughs) Before we go on, we should just say, you know, for anybody listening, given that I'm a world authority on retinal detachments, since I've had four of them, things that you need to watch out for are just sudden floaters, you know, bursting into your vision, particularly small floaters, um, I describe it like English marmalade when you get them, and classically also you get a blank spot in your vision, which is called a scotoma, and it can be, it's like a semicircular black spot in your vision, and you can also get flashes, like little lightning flashes across your eye vision, which is actually the uh, vitreous in the, the jelly in your eye tugging against your retina. So any of those symptoms, sudden floaters flashing lights, and certainly if you get a scotoma, um, head off. uh, If you get a scotoma, you need to head off to hospital. But if you get the other ones, check out with your GP, but you may need an ophthalmologist or a retinal surgeon to have a look at it.
0: Okay, great advice. Last one, Christine, she's written in and she says, my sense of taste changed during the time of the bushfire smoke events in Canberra earlier this year. This did not resolve when the smoke stopped. Since then, I've had a tingling sensation on the front of my tongue, along with a metallic or bitter taste. Would the timing with the smoke event be a coincidence or related? Any information would be interesting to know. It's interesting. I've not heard of changes to taste based on bushfire smoke that are yeah, ongoing uh, in any way. I
1: mean, it's conceivable that the bushfire smoke, if you've really been close to it and intense, that it's damaged the olfactory epithelium, which is the smelling tissue at the top of your nose, which might have affected um, what's called your cranial nerves in your brain, somehow affecting your tongue. What's a bit worrying there is just the symptoms like the tingling on the tongue. I would have thought that Christine needs to go and get a checkup with her GP and if necessary, just a double check with a neurologist that there's not something else going on. But it could just simply be chemical damage from the smoke but getting things like tingling anywhere in your body and you're it's not easily explained that's more than just losing your taste you probably just do need to get checked up
0: and sometimes that metallic taste can be kind of a side effect of things like medication and other that's causes exact, for that too yeah that's
1: exactly right Liv thank you
0: thanks so much well
1: done and if you want to send in a question or a comment email us at healthreport at abc.net.au this has been the Health Report podcast. Do recommend it to others. Do give us a review on Apple Podcasts and we'll see you next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC
3: Listen app.